How many of you got to see the kids' uh, little little play over there, the Palm Sunday skit? Wasn't that good? My favorite part was when Jesus was ascending and he gave it that right there. I thought, I thought that was awesome. But, man, we're thankful for all the people that, uh, that help with our kids each and every week. Uh, I know Drusy put tons of work in. Our hospitality team put tons of work in. And then every week... Uh, the people who serve in our nursery and our kids' church constantly put tons of work in, and they pray every week that I would preach shorter so they could spend less time back there. Amen. Uh, but, man, we got a lot of, I, I'm just, I'm grateful to be a member of, of this church just because of the wonderful people that, that God has placed in this place. So I'm thankful for that this morning. You thankful for that this morning? Amen. 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 So listen, let me give you a couple more announcements. You saw those next steps. We've got a lot of people going through next steps right now. Uh, but next week is Easter, and we usually do it the third Sunday, but we're going to skip it since it's Easter and do it the 24th at 1 p.m. If, you're, if you want to jump into next steps, it's step two. doesn't really matter where you jump in, just as long as you do jump in. But you can sign up at the welcome desk for that if you are interested. And then on May the 1st, we have several people that have uh, you know, either gotten saved or, or, or just not been baptized. But on May the 1st, we're going to have a baptism Sunday. So if you are interested in being baptized, if you've not, if you're a believer in Jesus and you've not been baptized, this is your first step in salvation and in following Jesus. It's your first act of obedience in your relationship to God. And that's what he calls us to. So if you want to be baptized, uh, if you've got questions about it, you can speak with me or talk with me about it. Uh, But sign up at the welcome desk and let us know. Let's get some of your information on that. So this morning, we've been preaching through the book of James, but I'm going to take a break from the book of James because this week and next week, I think it's important that we sort of set everything else aside and focus solely on the central aspect of our Christian faith, which is the death, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and His resurrection on the third day. And this morning, I want to preach specifically to you about the crucified God. And I know that that may sound, that sounds a little bit strange the way that you word it, but I think it's important that I word it that way. The crucified God, that's what I want to preach to you uh, about this morning. But let's pray together because I want God to give us a revelation of what, what this really does and what this really is. So Father, we just thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your truth and for your spirit. And right now, God, we just ask, Lord, same way the Apostle Paul prayed that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of who you are, God. That the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. And Lord, not only would we get a revelation of who you are, God, and the veil would be pulled back so that we could see Jesus, who you are, but also what you've done for us on the cross and what that means. God, sometimes it's hard to understand everything about the Christian faith and especially what it means when you hung there on that cross for us and for our sins. But I pray, Holy Spirit, you would open that to us. And I pray, Lord, that, that, that hearts would be healed, people would be saved. Father, that there would be redemption in this house this morning, that there would be healing and that there would be deliverance. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And amen. amen. So, you know, in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, Paul says this. He makes this, this statement that, that, I, that I really love. He says, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. All of the things that Paul did know. Man studied all kinds of things his entire life, and he went to a group of people in Corinth that knew philosophy. They knew all kinds of different gods. They had all kinds of different information backwards and forwards. And all of these things going on, and he says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And Paul understood that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God really is. Now that's wild, isn't it? He's saying that you want to get the clearest revelation of who God actually is, you need to look to Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, and there's where you're going to find what God is really like, who he really is. And so if we're asked uh, the question uh, as Christians, where is the center of the Christian faith? We're going to respond the cross. If we are asked, hey, where were our sins forgiven and where was the world set right? We're going to answer the cross. And if we are asked more significantly, what is God like? Can you tell me what God is like? We are going to answer. You need to look to the cross. You're going to say, you see that man that's hanging there on the cross, bleeding and dying 
That is what God looks like. Forgiving sinners while they are acting that sin upon him in that moment. He's saying that is what God looks like. So Christians, the thing is, is we are peculiar people. Like when Christians are actually being Christians, we're a strange group of people, aren't we? When Christians are actually being Christians, the world's like, man, what are these people about? This is so weird. They believe some of the strangest things, and, and they act so different than the world, and they don't look at sex, and they don't look at life, and they don't look at things the way that the rest of the world looks. But one of the most peculiar things about Christians is that they believe in a crucified God, and they worship a crucified God. There have been world religions throughout history with various gods, and these gods are always called almighty and omnipotent and all-powerful and amazing. And listen, we call our God, Jesus Christ, those same things. But before we call Him omnipotent, sovereign, powerful, and almighty, we worship Him as crucified Lord. And that's an amazing thing because it turns everything upside down on its head. When you talk about somebody being powerful and almighty, the last thing that you think about is that person being crucified and hung on a tree. We're talking about a Creator that was murdered by His creation. And if you allow that to penetrate your mind and your heart for a minute, it does something to you. You're thinking about the one who gave the very breath of life into our lungs allowed us to act upon him in such a way that we took the very breath from his lungs. And that's an amazing thing to begin to comprehend because it does not seem what God would do if we're talking about a God. And there's many things happening on the cross. And when you start to get into the theology of it and you talk about atonement theories and all this and say, what was really happening on the cross? If you just simplify it down, what we know is that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins, and that means something very, very significant. And, you know, one time I was reading, I was studying, a very well-known theologian, he made this statement one time. He said, you know what, God, Jesus didn't come to save us to God. He came to save us from God. Can I tell you that I disagree with that wholeheartedly because the Scripture says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself. Jesus didn't come to save us from God. He came to reconcile us to God the Father. He did not die on the cross because God was angry at us. He died on the cross because God loved us so much and sent His Son. God didn't send Jesus because He was angry at you. God sent Jesus because He loved you. God sent Jesus because He loved you. And so there's so many things that are happening on the cross. And God, He so loved the world that He gave His Son. And when we look to Jesus on the cross, this image of Jesus on the cross, and you look at that and you say, who is this tortured man dying, hanging on a cross? Christians make the outlandish claim, this is God. This is God hanging on the cross. This is God in the flesh. And if you don't find that shocking, here's the thing. As I'm meditating on this week and I think about this, I think to myself, if we don't find that shocking, you have become too familiar with the crucifixion. It's just another thing that you're used to or, or you get caught up in and you just think, well, yeah, that's what God does. He hung on the cross. Jesus died for our sins. If you are not shocked by that reality, you've become far too familiar with the crucifixion of Jesus. And before the cross is anything else, let me tell you something. It is a catastrophe. It is the violent, unjust murder of an innocent man and an innocent God. Before it's anything else, it is a catastrophe and it is the greatest crime in history. It is deicide. It is the murder of God. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 24, it says this. It says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, Notice this. I don't think I've got it back on the screen for some reason, but it says this. It says, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, but God raised him up. Having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So he says, you have taken by lawless hands and you've crucified him and put to death. Now, what we have often been taught is that, hey, God killed Jesus. But what he says over and over again in the book of Acts when the apostles are preaching, he says, look, you all are the one who crucified Jesus and put him to death, but God's part was that he raised him up. 
He says the same thing in Acts chapter 3. You denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead. He says you killed the Prince of Life, but God raised him from the dead. And then he says in Acts chapter 5, 30 and 31, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you murdered by hanging on a tree, and and God has exalted him to his right hand to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He says, God raised him up, but you murdered him by hanging him on a tree. So we've always thought, man, God was the one killing Jesus, but in the scripture, what he's actually saying is that God's not the one killing Jesus. We were the ones that murdered Jesus. God had a predetermined and for, he had full foreknowledge of what was going to take place, but God was in that moment handing Jesus over, and that's what the wrath of God is. The wrath of God is when God finally says, do you want to be handed over to your sins? I will release you unto that. I will put you in that place. And in that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, all of a sudden God placed all of the sin of the world upon Jesus Christ. And He handed Him over to the full consequences of sinful humanity. And when He handed Him over to the full consequences of sinful humanity, all of a sudden that moves in and He releases Him over to it. And what is the full manifestation of sinful humanity? It is the murder of God. I mean, all the things that we do, we commit lust, we commit rape, we commit adultery, we lie, we cheat, we steal. We do all of these sins, but when sin meets its apex, what does it do? It kills God. And in that moment, you see the full manifestation of sin being poured out into one man on the cross in Jesus Christ. He becomes our scapegoat. He becomes our substitution. He takes our position. And God knew it would happen. The Father knew that it would happen, but He willed it because He knew that through the death of His Son, He would undo what we had done. We had taken the breath that God had given us, had authority over the earth to steward creation, to, 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 to just exult in God's glory and love and obey Him and follow Him and make the world a beautiful place. But we listened to Satan. We listened to the lies of the enemy and we abused our authority. We abused what God had given us. And then all of a sudden we lost it all and Satan gained authority. So guess what? God says, I need to become a man in order to get back what man lost. And so he comes and he dies on the cross in our place, a death that only we deserved. And the question is, where is God at Calvary? When you see Jesus hanging on the cross, the question is, when he's hanging there, where's God at in all that? Is God with Caiaphas, the high priest, who needs a religious, sacrificial scapegoat and says, man, we need a sacrifice for the place of people and for the place of people's sins. Is he with Caiaphas in the religious system? Or maybe you see him with Pilate because he he demands justice and there has to be justice for the wrongs that have been done and there's a violent demanding of justice. Maybe he's with Pilate, but here's what I want you to understand. You don't see God with the religious crowd and you don't see God with the political crowd. You see God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God is in Christ on the cross with him. The Father is with the Son. And so while he's hanging there on the cross, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And what you don't have is a son begging an angry father to please don't don't hurt them. Please don't hurt them. That's what we think it is. We We think sometimes that Jesus is begging an angry father to please forgive them. But you know what the Father is saying? He's saying, Son, you're not begging an angry father. You're revealing who I am. It is my desire to forgive them while they are in the act of doing this because I so love them that I want you to understand that what we do is we receive and we absorb the sins of the world in love and we recycle it in forgiveness. He didn't wait until he felt better about it to forgive them. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do while they were crucifying him. And I'm astounded by that because I think about this God who took all of my sins, looked at my life from the beginning to the end. And when he looked at my life, he saw all of the sins that I would commit and everything that I would do. And as he is doing that, as he's doing that with me, all of a sudden he looks at all of it and he says, Father, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know what he's doing. And this is happening in our lives. And God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself in that moment. And Jesus entered our pain and suffering on the cross to redeem us. So many people say, well, you know, you're going through pain and suffering. You've lost a loved one, maybe. Maybe you're dealing with sickness or disease. And you say, man, where is God in my pain and my suffering? 
What God came to reveal on the cross is that he's not a God that is far off from your pain and suffering, but he's a God that has entered into your pain and your suffering with you. On the cross, he says, I'm not far off. I have come to enter into exactly what you are going through. I'm with you in your pain and your suffering. This is not how I designed it. You all failed and you rebelled against me, but I love you so much that I came to enter into it with you. I'm not far off, but I'm close at hand. And when we begin to see see that Jesus died for us on the cross and he revealed the fullness of his power. Look, he did not reveal the fullness of his power by exterminating us all because he could have. He could have saw a sinful creation and said, you know what, I think I'll exterminate every last one of them and get rid of them and wipe this out. And he could have revealed his power in a moment of time by speaking a word and exterminating us. But instead, he reveals his power by coming and taking on flesh and allowing sinful humanity to act upon him. And he gave his life and allowed us to murder him on the cross. That's his power. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Basically, if you preach what I'm just preaching to people who are perishing, they say that's ridiculous. Why would any God in the history of time who has all power allow His creation to kill Him? That's not power, that's weakness, that's foolishness. But the Scripture says, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross contains the power of God within itself. And let me tell you something. Like I love practical tips. I love self-help sometimes and all that. But the most powerful message today that every person needs to hear and throughout the world is Christ crucified. You say, but there's no practical steps. Let me tell you something. The most practical step you can take is turning from your sin and placing faith in the crucified Lord of glory because there is a release of the, of the power of God by the Holy Spirit that can forgive you of sin, cleanse you from unrighteousness, set you free from bondage, heal your sick body, and raise you to new life just by listening to the gospel message preached. I believe that with all of my heart. I believe that there's power in this message. And everything that Jesus did on the cross, there was meaning behind it. In the Old Testament, the high priest would take, he would do a sevenfold sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement. A sevenfold sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement. And Jesus was that sacrificial lamb. He was the atonement offering. And he had, guess what, seven times that he dropped his blood. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat great drops of blood. They pulled out his beard for a second time when he bled. The third time, they struck him on the face. The fourth time, they scourged him with a cat of nine tails. The fifth time, they put a crown of thorns on his head. The sixth time, they nailed his hands and his feet. And the seventh time, when he breathed his last, they put a spear in his side and there was a sevenfold sprinkling of blood because what was typified in the Old Testament, Jesus was applying to the throne in heaven. He was applying it to the mercy seat for you and I so that at the same place that God met them at the mercy seat is the same place that God would meet you and I. We don't deserve it, but he extends his mercy because the blood of his son he sees. And so God has done this beautiful thing for us, but you need to understand that Jesus, he died voluntarily. We didn't just kill him by force, even though we think we did. Because he's eating with his disciples. We're moving into this week. We call it Maundy Thursday, whatever in the world that means, right? It's a weird word. And then you've got Good Friday, and then you have Easter Sunday. And that Thursday night, he was eating with his disciples. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. Judas goes out to betray him. He has the Last Supper. They have communion together. He institutes the Lord's Supper. They go out into the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying to get ready for what he's about to go through. The sin of the world is being placed upon him, and that pressure... You think about that pressure because just like what Caitlin was talking about, we're not just talking about sin. We're talking about just the pressures of life that we go through that bring anxiety to our mind. Imagine all of your anxiety, all of your pressure, and all of the world's anxiety and pressure. But not only that, all of the sin of the world throughout history placed upon him in a moment of time. That placed upon one physical body caused the sweat glands to burst and he began to sweat great drops of blood. And as he's in there in Gethsemane praying, you think, well, they come and they got him. But do you know that the Scripture says that when the, when the soldiers came in to get him, he stood up and they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he stood up and he said, I am. And when he did, they fell flat on their faces by the power of God. In other words, he's saying, you're not just taking me. I'm voluntarily going. 
Because I'm the one who created you and gave you breath. And if I wanted to, I could call 12 legions of angels. And they would sweep you boys away and end your life right now. But I'm laying down my life because I love you. And I'm going in your place. And that night as they took him away and he voluntarily went, he went through six trials all night long from 9 p.m. to 6 p.m. And he meets with Annas. And then he meets with the high priest Caiaphas. And then he goes to Pilate and the Sanhedrin. And then he goes to Herod. And then he goes back to Pilate. Six trials over the course of nine hours. Six being the number of man. Six being the number of the devil. He was under trial and accusation by Satan. They tried to find anything against him that they could. But they couldn't find anything against him because he was a perfect man. Amen. But see, finally they found something that he was guilty of. In Matthew 26, 63... Here's what it says. It says, But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. See, here's the reality. He says, I put you under oath. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. He was the Christ. He was the anointed one. You know what the Christ means? It means that he was the anointed one. The one upon whom the Holy Spirit had come. He was the one, the only one, that by the power of the Spirit could set you free from sin, set you free from bondage, raise your dead body up out of the ground. If you were sick and you touched the hem of his garment, the anointing would be released and he would be healed. He was the one, and he demonstrated it over the course of three years by healing the sick, raising the dead casting out demons and bringing freedom into the broken and loving the poor. And they saw it for three years and they said, tell us if you're the Christ, the anointed one. He's the only one that can do this in your life. He's the only one that could bring freedom. And Jesus said in verse 64, it is as you said, nevertheless I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? And as they're doing this, they plan to send him off to the most excruciating execution in human history. He comes, Jesus chooses to come during a time when the mode of execution is crucifixion, which is the most painful execution in human history. It's the cross. And 800 years before it happened, before crucifixion had become popular, Isaiah saw it and he prophesied about it. And we know these scriptures in Isaiah 53. It says, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs. The word griefs there in Hebrew is literally sicknesses. And he's carried our sorrows. The word there again in the Hebrew is literally pains. He has carried our sicknesses and our pains, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now, let me tell you something here. Most people twist that, and they say, see, God was smiting him there. The reality is it says that we thought he was smitten. We thought he was stricken by God and afflicted because they believed that any man who hung on the cross was a cursed man. And he was there because somehow he had offended God and God was bringing rightful punishment on him. But it was the opposite. He was setting us free from the curse. He became the curse for us, but we esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted. But he wasn't smitten by God. He was God. And on the cross, he was revealing God in that moment. And it says, but he was wounded or pierced through, literally, the word, for our transgression. See, Isaiah knew 800 years before exactly how it was going to take place. He was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Now, I'm going to quickly run through five things that the cross does for us specifically and what the crucified God means to you when it is applied for your life. Number one, Jesus was scourged for our healing. Now, I'm going to take some images from uh, The Passion of the Christ. If you've not seen the movie, I recommend watching it this week, especially as you tune your mind to what Jesus has done for you on the cross. But he was scourged for our healing, and they sent him out early Friday morning. 
And the first step was the scourging. And they would take a cat of nine tails, which they would soak a leather whip in a lot of water. And then they would wrap, wrap it up, wrap the leather around bone, around fragments of bone and pieces of glass and metal like that. And they would beat him, and they would beat him very specifically. It was 39 stripes because they believed that 40 was the death penalty. Most people couldn't survive such a beating because it would open their back. And usually they would bleed out if they used the cat of nine tails. And so they would do it in a very specific way. They would do 13. 13 stripes on the left, they would be, do 13 stripes down the middle of the back and then 13 stripes on the right of the back. And so they scourged him and the scripture reads that by his stripes we are healed. Every stripe on his back was for some disease, some infirmity, something that you would bear in, in your body, he bore in his body. He said, I recognize that part of the fall. See, God was not the one who originally brought sin and sickness and death into the world. You understand that. God had a plan from the beginning. God is sovereign. He sees it all. But sin, sickness, and death is a law that came from the rebellion of humanity and the powers of darkness. When you see sin, when you see sickness, when you see death, you see the works of the devil. And this is what the Scripture says, that Jesus Christ has manifested Himself in the flesh to destroy the works of the devil. And we do not yet see all of those things under His feet, but one day we will see them all under His feet. But do you know that Jesus came, and when He came, He brought the foretaste of the kingdom. It's not here just yet. We're still waiting on it. That's why we sing that song, We're Getting Ready. We're getting ready because we're waiting for the day that the Lamb comes and we're married to Him. There's no more sickness, no more sin, no more death, no more suffering. But in this moment, guess what? We've got the Holy Spirit. And there are moments where there's foretastes of the kingdom that break through among us, and healing takes place. Freedom takes place. Deliverance takes place. God, from Genesis to Revelation, reveals himself it is his nature to be a healer he is a healer and Jesus shows up and what does he do he heals the sick and he reveals that God is a healer and Jesus teaches that the forgiveness of sins and the healing of the body are two sides of the same coin in the kingdom of God you don't have one without the other and in first Peter 2 24 Peter says it once again he said who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. And here's the thing, we pray for people. As Christian believers, we should believe for healing and we should pray for healing. When we don't see healing happen, you know what, that's okay because in Christ we will all receive healing at the end of the age. He has purchased our healing whether it happens in this life or the next. But He has called us to believe for it here in the now. He's taught us to pray for healing, to believe for the gifts of healing to be manifested. Because at the end of the day, it's not so important that bodies are healed. It's important that souls are saved. But Jesus says that it's not just about the saving of the soul. I want to redeem the whole of humanity. Spirit, soul, and body. And so He took the stripes on His back in His body for a very specific purpose. He didn't just take something in his soul, he took it in his body. Because he knew you were going to be able to, you were going to be taking a lot of things in your body. And so after they scourged him, they took him to the praetorium, which is where the guards kind of hung out. And when they took him here, they began to mock him, they blindfold him. He was called the king of the Jews, and the Romans thought they were the king of the Jews. So they start to mock him, and they, pro they, they, they blindfold him and start to hit him and say, Prophesy to us, who hit you? And they can't get any reaction out of him. And so they cannot get any reaction out of him. And when they can't, one guy takes a crown of thorns that he made to mock him for being called the king of the Jews. And they take sticks and press that crown of thorns down upon his head, and the pressure comes around his head, and blood goes inside and outside as he bleeds from his head, and they place that crown of thorns. Now, th th this, is, this is so interesting because Jesus is coronated as king. You know, when somebody becomes a king in the world system, what happens? You put an actual crown on their head, and you lift them up above the people. When Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, was coronated as king, the crown was placed on his head, but it was a crown of thorns. And when he was hung, he was hung for his very own death in shame. Not in glory, but in shame. And he became king of kings and lord of lords in that moment. In Isaiah 53, they tried to provoke him, but they couldn't. It says that he was oppressed in verse 7, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. 
He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. They hit him, they spat on him, but they couldn't provoke a reaction out of him, so they put the crown of thorns on his head. And here's something that's interesting. The thorns represent something very specific. Whenever the fall came and sin came into the world, what happened is the Scripture says that from now on, when you try to grow something, you're going to get, th- you're going to get thorns and thistles. Thorns always represent the curse throughout Scripture. And if you read Deuteronomy 28, the first half of it of the blessings is pretty good stuff. I don't know if you've ever re- read it. It's a long chapter. On the back end, there's nothing but curses. And let me read to you some of the curses that show up as a result. In Deuteronomy 28, it says that you will have confusion, anxious heart, anguish of soul, your life hanging in doubt before you. You shall fear day and night and have no assurance of life. How many of y'all you ever been in that situation? You're confused, you're anxious, you have anguish of soul, your life is hanging in doubt, you're fearing day and night and you have no assurance of life. He says this is the reality of the curse. And what Jesus does is he takes the thorn which represents the curse and it's placed over his mind because that's where that curse takes place in your own life. You experience it, you and I. It's the law of sin and death at work in us. It's the reason we're anxious and fearful and worried and our life hanging in the balance. And Jesus says, I want to take that in your place so that I can give you peace. The scripture says that the chastisement for our peace, what? Was upon him. The chastisement for you to have peace was upon him. Jesus died so that you could not just be saved and go to heaven when you die, but that you could have peace in the here and the now. That you could experience a peace that this world does not give. He says says that he will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon him because he trusts in him. Now let me tell you something. It's okay for us, us to go through challenging times. I talk to people week in, week out. They go through difficult times. They don't know how they're going to get through it. And they wrestle with all kinds of different things. And it happens to all of us. But can I tell you that Jesus has died and he has come to give you a peace that this world cannot give. This world will offer you peace in a variety of different ways. But Jesus has given us a sacrifice and also a way of life that there is an internal peace that guards our hearts and guards our minds and it surpasses all understanding in Jesus Christ. And he's saying, I died for you to have that. I want you to experience that, and I want you to have that. Number three, Jesus, he took the nails for our sin. He took the scourging for our healing. He took the crown of thorns for peace in our minds, and he took the nails for our sins because they made Jesus drag his own cross up Calvary, and once he got there, they laid the cross down. They laid him out on the cross. They stretched his hands out, and they stretched his feet out. They probably most likely put his feet together and put a nine-inch nail right through his feet, nailing him to the cross. And then they stretched him out, and some people say they would have done it in the hand. Other people say that it would have been in the wrists because it would have torn from the hand with his body weight hanging on it. So they put it here between these two bones in the wrist, and the hand will hold it up. But the, but the process of this, and this is why it's called they, they, they developed the word excruciating from the crucifixion because there's a certain amount of pain that comes in those nerve endings when your full body weight is hanging. And the goal of crucifixion is that you die a slow death, that your weight hangs there long enough that before long what you do is you suffocate, you asphyxiate. You die because you can no longer br- breathe because fluid and blood is building up in your lungs. And so he hangs there. From 9 a.m. to about 3 p.m. And when those nails are placed in his hands, what you need to understand is that the hands represent everything that we've ever done wrong. It represents our sinful actions. The feet represents the path of our life. The scripture says we like sheep have all gone astray. We walked a different path, not the path of God, but in our actions, the things that we've done, the things that we failed to done, and in the paths of life that we've taken in a different direction of God, he says, I'm going to nail your sins right there, and I'm going to take all of your actions in the path that you went, and I'm going to bring redemption into your life in this situation. And so he takes the nails in his hands, and he takes the nails in his feet, and In Jesus' time, if anyone owed a debt 
and the debt was paid, what they would take is they would take the bill and they would place it on a door and they would nail it to the door. In other words, Jesus was saying, guess what? Your sin debt, everything you've did, the paths that you've taken, I'm nailing it all to the cross and I'm giving you forgiveness in this moment. I'm saying it is finished. Your debt has been paid in full for everything that you have ever done wrong. And here's the thing about the gospel that some people find really scandalous is I talk to people very regularly and I hope somebody hears me this morning. But somehow or another, they think because of what they have done, maybe they were a drug addict, maybe they stole from their parents, maybe they raped someone. I mean, things, people do horrific things. And were it not for the grace of God, any of us could be capable of these same offenses. Amen. But here's the thing that Jesus does is he says, look, all of these things have been paid for. Whatever you have done, these things have been paid for on the cross. In that moment, they were all nailed. No matter what you think they could have done. And the shame and the guilt that you carry because of what you have done should never keep you from worshiping this Son of God. Matter of fact, matter of fact, the greater the sin that you think you have should lead you into greater worship of this God because of what He's done for you when He nailed your sin to the cross. You should be able to come in here and say, you know what, all of the things that I sh I've done, I should worship God even more freely than anybody else in this building because I know the things that I've been washed and cleansed for. He says, I take your sins and I cast them as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. This is a beautiful thing because if you are a follower of Christ and you die today, and you go to meet Jesus and you say, Lord, I don't know if I'm going to make it in. What about all of those sins? He will say, what sins? Because somebody's going to pay for your sins. It's either going to be you or it's going to be Jesus. And if you put faith in Christ, you're declaring, I have allowed Jesus to make my sin payment, my debt payment on the cross. And all of it has been nailed to the cross. I am freely forgiven. And I am the shame, the guilt of what I've done is broken. In Hebrews 9, 14, it says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He takes the stain of guilt and shame off of our lives. See, He doesn't just want you to know that you're forgiven. He wants to lift the shame. He wants to lift the guilt. He wants your conscience to be clean. You know what it's like? I remember when I was about 12 years old, I stole a pack of cigarettes from Speedway. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever done that? My conscience. It, I mean, it ate me up. And the funny thing about a conscience is, is the more sin you commit, the more you numb and sear your conscience. And I remember... When I first started coming back to the Lord, he started making my conscience more sensitive. He, he brought it back to life. There was a new sensitivity to it. There were things that I was doing now by the Spirit that used to I could do and not even bat an eye. But now by the Spirit of God, my conscience would eat at me. And he says, I'm going to cleanse that conscience. I'm going to restore it. I'm going to, re going to renew it. And I'm going to take away your shame and your guilt. Number four, Jesus took the spear for our broken heart. Because after he hung there for a while on the cross... Finally, at the end, he breathed his last. And if you remember, as he's hanging there, he cries out, It is finished to Telestai. It's paid in full. And he breathed his last breath. And for some, sometimes, listen, if somebody was crucified and they weren't beaten that bad, they'd hang up there for days sometimes. And in mercy, in mercy, they would take a big sledgehammer, essentially, and sometimes break the legs of the people hanging so that they would die more quickly. But when they went to do this to Jesus, it was actually written that none of his bones would be broken. And they started to do it, and they didn't, and it fulfilled Scripture. The reason they didn't is because he had already died and went on. So they said, okay, don't use the sledgehammer. Just pierce him in the side to make sure he's dead. And when they did, they took the spear and pierced him in the side, and the Scripture said, out came blood and water. Blood comes out for redemption. Water represents the regeneration and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that comes. But do you remember in the Old Testament when Moses smote the rock and they said that that rock was Christ? What came out of that rock? Water flowed right out of that rock because he was the rock that was smitten. In the old covenant, they were already saying, somebody said, you know what, the Bible's just a children's book. Let me tell you something. The Bible knew more than you knew before you were... You cannot imagine... 
the beauty of Scripture and how it's tied together and what it reveals over the course of thousands of years with many different men writing it in different contexts. And all of it was pointing to this moment where Jesus would die for your sins and your foolishness. And they say that because water came out, it means that what had happened, I don't know if it's real, but some scientists say that his heart would have burst at that point. It would have ruptured and it would have caused the release of water. And so some people will say, well, you know, that's, that's because Jesus died of a broken heart. And the reason Jesus died of a broken heart was because he wanted you to have healing in your broken heart. When Jesus came, he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He sent me to preach good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted. And, and there's people in here, I know you're brokenhearted. You've lost a loved one. Maybe you went through a divorce. You experienced some kind of rejection. Maybe there's just some kind of pain in your life or sickness or disease, and you're dealing with a broken heart over what's going on in your life. And Jesus says, I took a broken heart for you so that I could heal your broken heart and that I could restore you to health. You know, Proverbs 17, 22, a merry heart does good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. And I'm going to tell you something. Jesus don't want you to live in a state of brokenness. We all mourn and we all grieve and God comforts us in that mourning and in that grief because we go through suffering in this life, don't we? But Jesus has entered that suffering with us and he says, I want to bring healing, I want to bring restoration to you. And he took that broken heart so that you could experience that healing. And at this moment in history, all the forces of the universe are converging. You see everything moving together in an instant. You see humanity doing its work by pouring all of our sin upon Jesus and crucifying him. You see Jesus dying in our place, the just for the unjust. You see God the Father revealing his love by sending his son to die in his place. And you see Satan at the cross. Because the one, here's what's so crazy. Here's how smart and how sovereign God actually is. You know that the scripture says that if the principalities and powers, that means Satan and the powers of darkness, if they had known they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And this brings me to my fifth point, is that Jesus suffered the death of the cross to defeat the powers of darkness. He suffered the death of the cross because He was defeating sin, He was defeating death, but He was also disarming and destroying the powers of darkness. And He was undoing and taking back the authority that Satan had over your life. In Colossians 2, 14 and 15, it says this, he canceled out every legal violation we had on our record. And the old arrest warrant that stood to indict us. He erased it all. Our sins, our stained soul. He deleted it all and they cannot be retrieved. Everything we once were in Adam has been placed onto his cross and nailed permanently there as a public display of cancellation. Then Jesus made a public spectacle of all the powers and principalities of darkness, stripping away from them every weapon and all their spiritual authority and power to accuse us. And by the power of the cross, Jesus led them around as prisoners in a procession of triumph. He was not their prisoner. They were His. That's a beautiful way of saying it, isn't it? Here's what He's saying. He's saying that Satan thinks in terms of legal rights. And Satan thought that he owned humanity. Matter of fact, when he tempted Jesus, he said, look at all these kingdoms of the world. He said, they have been handed over to me. He believed, and he was right, that Adam had forfeited humanity's authority and placed it in the hands of Satan. And he believed that he had full ownership of humanity because of our sin against the holy God. And this is why he could bring us under the law of sin, under the law of sickness and death and pain and suffering and all of these things. And when Jesus shows up, all the demons gather together and they say, man, we got to get a plan on this dude. This dude is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. But you know what? He's got flesh and blood just like the rest of them. Why don't we do what we've done to the rest of them? We kill him and this thing's over. We kill him and it's ended. So he begins to stir in the minds of the religious. He begins to stir in the minds of the political. And they devise a plan. And they say, we're going to kill this man. And we're going to get rid of him because he is destroying the powers of darkness. But what Satan did not know is that he did not have a legal right to kill that man. Jesus did not deserve death. But yet he entered into death. See, death came through sin. 
This man hadn't sinned. He was not subject to the power of death, but yet he submitted to the power of death. He allowed Satan and the principalities and the powers to kill him, and in doing so, it reversed everything. When he killed Jesus, and when Jesus breathed his last, God signified that this work was a work of God and that he attested that everything that Jesus spoke and everything that Jesus did was true and he put his stamp of approval on it by raising him from the dead on the third day. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he took authority back from Satan. That means that every legal charge, when Satan looks at you and he says, you know what, God can't bless you, you did this. God can't bless you, you did that. Guess what? You can say, no, honey, that ain't how it works no more. He done already paid for all of it on the cross. There's nothing laid to my charge anymore. You can no longer hold me in bondage, Satan, to this addiction, to this suffering, to this guilt, to this shame, to this pain. Jesus took it on the cross. So I'm telling you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what I've done, you've got no right to my life. Jesus has nailed it to the cross, canceled it, wiped it out of the way. And sometimes Satan tricks you into believing that somehow it's not canceled. And I'm telling you, do not believe his lies. What Jesus has done has canceled your debt. Satan has no right to your life. He has purchased your freedom. He has purchased your healing, your redemption, your forgiveness, your salvation. You should receive it all this morning. There should be nothing holding you back any longer. Because we have a crucified God who died in your place, who loved you just that much. God simply asks us to receive this gift of salvation. So here's what I want to do. We're going to receive communion because there's something in that. We're talking about the body of Christ which was broken for you. You saw the body of Christ broken for you this morning. You saw the blood of Jesus. And that's what he said to his disciples when they met before this happened. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. As often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. He says, this is my blood, the blood of a new and everlasting covenant so that sins may be forgiven. As often as you take it, do it in remembrance of me. And so when we take this, there's power in this. There is a release of faith. I'm telling you, you can receive from God what you need this morning. So we're going to have these gentlemen begin to pass this out. And as they're passing this out, I just want you to meditate on this. You may be in a place this morning where you don't know the Lord. And here's the thing. If you don't know Jesus and you still are like, I, I, I'm not there yet. I don't want that. I just ask you to opt out. This, can't, this isn't going to bless you in any way. This is for those who have entered into that covenant with Jesus. But if you want to know Jesus and you say, today I'm making that decision. I want to follow Jesus. I want to turn from my sins. Then you take that cup and you can enter into this covenant relationship with him by placing faith in what Jesus has done. But as they pass those out, I just want you to take a moment. I want you to meditate on the cross just for a minute. you do I want you to take that that wafer and at, before you take it we'll take the wafer first and we'll pray and then we'll take the blood but before you take it I just want you to close your eyes and I want you to think about his body on that cross and those stripes in his back he says, this is my body which is broken for you. And Jesus, it's because your body was broken that we have the authority in your name to speak to sickness and say, go in Jesus' name. 
It's because of your broken body that we can, we can speak to cancer and disease and say, be gone in Jesus' name and pray healing into each cell of everybody. And so we speak that word of healing and we ask, Lord, that as we receive this body, that we would receive your healing and declare that by your stripes, Jesus, we are healed. So Holy Spirit, release your power as we receive your body in Jesus' name. So just take it and take the body. cup of my blood, the blood of a new and everlasting covenant. And it was shed for the sins of all so that our sins could be forgiven. And every time I come to this cup, I like to think about I like to think about what Jesus has done in my life. I like to think about the sin that he's washed away from my life. And I, and I tell you, I come and I confess my sins to him right now. The things that I've go, I'm going through, the things that I've done, the things that I've failed to do. And I thank him because the scripture says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so there's cleansing in this. He says the blood, if we walk in the light, even as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And so Lord, we thank you that your blood was shed so that we could have forgiveness of sins and we confess our sins to you this morning Lord everything that we've done everything that we failed to do and Lord not only do we receive your forgiveness this this morning for our sins but we forgive those who have sinned against us and we release them father to you in the name of Jesus but Lord Jesus we thank you for the power of your blood that cleanses us and sets us free from shame and from guilt in Jesus name receive it. Now I want you to stand to your feet. We're going to worship the Lord this morning as we close. And if you just think about that, if you think about that cross and you sing the words of this song, it starts out how great a chasm that lay between us. There was a gap between us and God. And let me tell you something, Jesus came in that gap and he filled it. And when we think about what Jesus has done in our lives, it brings something into our heart where we, where we worship like never before. So I want us to just worship together. If you need prayer for anything, you can come around this altar. We'd love to pray for you. But let's just take a moment to truly respond to God and respond to what God has done in our lives. Amen.